Go ahead and take your seat. And as you're doing that, you can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, the rushes are walking towards the back. Just feel free to slip your hand up in the air, and we will make sure a Bible gets into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Trust it will be a blessing to you. We are diving in this afternoon to Genesis 27, and this is a familiar story in the book of Genesis about, again, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. We've already seen that Jacob has stolen his brother's birthright, and in this passage today, we're going to see how he cheats his brother out of the blessing of his father Isaac. And I don't know about you, but I, I, can, I can acknowledge that every family has problems, right? Every family has problems. Every church family has problems. But when we read this, I, I found a lot of comfort when I read this passage over and over this week because this family made my family look phenomenal, okay? Because this, this family is an absolute disaster. I mean, dis- dysfunctional is an understatement. And, and, and really, it's so shocking because only a couple chapters ago, if you were with us, you remember when we read through that beautiful chapter, you know, that hallmark chapter where uh, Isaac gets to meet his beautiful bride, his servant is sent out on this mission to retrieve a bride, and it, it's just this beautiful, picturesque kind of a marriage that we're, we're shown. It starts so wonderfully, and I entitled that message if you remember, a marriage made in heaven, and I thought about entitling this message here, a family headed to hell, because honestly, that's what it feels like when you read it. You you read this, and you wonder to yourself, is there anybody here who is actually redeemed, or is there anybody here who is actually redeemable? There, There are no human heroes in this passage at all. Not one. They are all a total and complete mess. The family is a disaster, and it's hard to read this, let alone imagine the kind of family that they have become. It's heartbreaking. They are dominated, as we are going to see, by selfishness. Brothers selfishly cheating each other out of an inheritance and a blessing. Parents playing favorites, pitting child against child and parent against parent. This chapter is filled with lying and deceiving and manipulating and blaspheming and murderous rage. I think almost every single one of the Ten Commandments is shattered in this passage. And, you know, we read in our time, our our New City Catechism, about the first and greatest commandment, the love of God and the love of neighbor being second. And here what we see in this family, this nuclear family, is that there appears to be no love for God and no love for each other. This chapter is certainly focused on the family. The term father, brother, mother, they're used repeatedly in this passage. And the theme is obvious. It's about this family. But more than that, what we see rising to the surface is one single word, or at least one variation of this word here, and it's this blessing. Blessing. 23 times this word is used in this passage. 
It's at the center of this passage, and it is the blessing that both defines and divides. I want you to be reminded of this today, the human, this human family, but it is also what defines and divides the human family. It is God's blessing that defines who we are as the people of God. You are either under the blessing of God or you are either under the curse. And here, really, this passage is all about getting God's blessings, but as we'll see, it's about going about getting God's blessings in in all the wrong ways. There's nothing redeeming in this passage from a human standpoint. And ironically, every person in this passage, again, is trying to get God's blessing. It's the right pursuit, but I want you to hear this. It's done in exactly the wrong ways. So, in a kind of ironic, tongue-in-cheek approach to this passage, I want to look at four worldly ways to achieve the blessing of God. Okay? I want to play off of the, the kind of negative examples in this passage, and I want us to learn from their negative examples four worldly ways to achieve the blessing of God. First, here's how you uh, achieve the blessing of God from a worldly way. Treasure worldly pleasures above God's word. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. The word of God reads that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And here we we begin this passage. Remember, Esau in the previous chapter had, had kind of gone about life in rebellion to his parents, and he had despised his birthright. And it ends on this kind of sour note of Esau despising his birthright at the end of chapter 25. And then chapter 26, we get into this picture of Esau, who, who in verse 35, he makes life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah by marrying outside the clan. And we're supposed to get this image here that be reminded that Esau is not the promised child. He has stepped outside of the blessing of God. And in fact, you'll notice that he's sent out in verse 3 to the field to hunt a game. He's he's supposed to take his bow and his quiver, and and we're supposed to think of this language very carefully, okay? We've already heard this language used to describe another older brother who is not the child of promise. Way back in chapter 21, we read about Ishmael. And so Moses is already trying to help us draw some parallels here that this brother is kind of like Ishmael in a lot of different ways. But I want you to see the central figure here is Isaac. And you'll notice what we see about him first. He is aging and he is blind. And what we are supposed to see here, pun intended, is that his diminished physical senses are actually pointing us to his diminished spiritual senses. The physical descriptors used of Isaac in this passage, not just here in these first five verses, but the remainder of this passage, they're identifying a significant problem in Isaac's life. The physical blindness is pointing towards a much deeper spiritual blindness. 
And we're going to find out in this passage that all the natural senses are actually at play in this drama. And again, they stand in contrast to his spiritual senses. Here's what we're going to see as we move into the next section. We're going to see that he's not just deceived by his sight, though he is. He's going to be deceived by his taste. He's going to be deceived by his touch. And he's going to be deceived by his hearing. He will be deceived by all his physical senses because at a much more profound level, his spiritual senses, sensitivity, have been dulled, sanded down. It's a really terrifying thought when you think about it. That this, this man who appeared to start so well has ended so poorly. And you know, the truth is, is, is this can happen to you and it can happen to me. You say, well, how so? The same way it happened to Isaac by willfully resisting the word of God. See, what do you mean? Well, well, I just want you to notice here that he thinks that, that death is near, which it's not, by the way. He's going to live a lot longer. But he thinks death is near, and notice what he wants to do. He sends his son out, and he says, go get some food. Right? I, I want a, a good meal before, before I do what? Before I bless you, my son. Now, now, what's the problem with that? The problem should be very obvious is that Isaac already knew God's word, did he not? He knew what God had communicated to his wife, Rebekah, that Esau was not going to be the son of the promise. The blessing is not going to go through Esau. It's going to come through Jacob. And so here he is in willful defiance to the clear instructions and word of God. He's willing to step outside of what God has so clearly said and to do the exact opposite. This is willful rejection of the word of God. He's willing not only to ignore God's word, he's willing to ignore the desires of his wife, who certainly, again, maybe over the years had appealed to him about their son Jacob, and he's, he's certainly, listen, willing to ignore his elect son, the one that God has chosen, who now had the birthright and he's doing so, think about, it, think about just how staggering this is. He's doing this in order to bless his immoral, rebellious son who has wreaked havoc on the family and caused immense amount of bitterness. He's like, okay, God, I don't care what you think. I'm just going to lay the blessing on this guy because that's the way I want to do it. Like I said, there's no, there's no heroes in this story. But I, but I want you to see this, that Isaac actually bears primary responsibility for the dysfunction in the family. Husbands, fathers, take note. We also see that failing to treasure God's word inevitably leads to a love for the world. Here's something that we can also glean from these first few verses. The creature comforts, worldly pleasures have become center place for Isaac. And that is represented in his love for food. Notice that word love is used there for his uh, longing for food, a good meal. And, and that's a word that's going to be used again and again throughout this passage. The food, the meal that he loves. And, and that's why he loves Esau so much, remember? Remember why Esau is his favorite son? Because Esau is the one who brings home the bacon, literally. And by the way, bacon was kosher at this point in history. Now, I don't, I don't think that Moses is telling the readers here, telling us that there is anything inherently evil 
with a good tasty meal. Praise the Lord. I think we can all celebrate that and be thankful for good tasting food. But I want you to pay attention to what it is saying, okay? He is warning that the craving for worldly pleasure, whether it is food, sex, entertainment, comfort, you fill in the blank. If that is what you pursue most of all, it will inevitably dull your spiritual senses. It will cloud out and crowd out your spiritual life. Your spiritual desires will begin to fade as your desires for the things in this world increase, okay? Something we all have to be watchful of in our lives. The more you find yourself, listen, the more you find the appetites for the worldly pleasures, things that may even be good and right, the more they begin to grow in your heart and your mind, and the more they begin to eclipse, listen, your love for the word of God, it's, it's going to have this negative impact on your spiritual appetites, your spiritual affections, and your spiritual life in general. And this, apparently, is what has happened to Isaac. As he's gotten older... He's drifted spiritually away from a love for God towards a love for the world and the pleasures in it. And and you know what's fascinating is that he's not the only one to do this in the pages of Scripture, is he? In fact, some of the godliest men in the Word of God, they, 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 near the end of their life, they start off so well. Think of, think of King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who is celebrated and praised in Scripture. And then all of a sudden, later on in his life, as he's beginning to age, as he's beginning to relax a little bit, the Word of God tells us that he, he chooses, at the times when kings are to go out to war, he decides he's going to stay back this time and kick his feet up a little bit and relax and rest, and that disastrous decision leads to utter downfall in his own house and family. It's in that moment where he begins to love the pleasures of this world rather than follow the commands of God that he begins to slide into greater and greater depths of sin and depravity. Or or think of his son Solomon, again, who is wise and godly, and yet we read about the end of his life. And at the end of his life, you know what he does? He begins to forsake the clear teachings of the word of God, and he acquires for himself many wives who end up leading his heart away from love of God and worship of God to love of idols and worship of idols. What happened? Worldly pleasures dulled spiritual senses. And that's what happens to every single one of us when we treasure the world above God's word. Don't, listen, let me, let me just exhort you as I exhort my own heart, don't let your fleshly appetites distract you from God's purposes and God's promises. Don't let your fleshly appetites dominate your heart and your mind. Allow the word of God to dominate your heart and mind. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be careful that we're not conformed to this world, but rather we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, and I want you to see the result of this, right? It is spiritual sensitivity that you may be able to test and discern and approve what is the will of God. The more you're immersing yourself in the world, the less you're attuned 
spiritually to the things of God. The more you're in the word of God, the more you're attuned and sensitive to the things of God. You, you sense his leading. You understand his will. You know right and wrong and good and evil, what is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God. This is a warning for all of us. But fathers, I want to call you to pay close attention. Men, take heed. What do you do instead? Here's what you do. Here's what you do. And this is true for all of us. But listen, sharpen your spiritual senses. Let me give you one way to do this. You've got to be in the word of God. But let me, let me give you a, a discipline that is often neglected in our lives, but is actually intended to heighten our spiritual sensitivities. Um, sharpen your spiritual senses by fasting from the pleasures of the world in order to find greater pleasure in the things of God. Okay? And, and there's, there's fasting from food is, one, is, is the most obvious way that this has been done uh, throughout the history of the church. It's clearly found in the word of God. But the idea is this. You give up things that are even good and right. Why? Why? Because you're, you're training your spiritual senses. You're training your heart and mind to long for, to crave for, and to feast more on the things that matter more, which is God. I would suggest that one of the ways we can practice this in our contemporary culture would be to fast from things like technology for seasons. You, you see, these are the things that are, are really kind of crafting and creating our appetites, or they're at least uh, helping to play to our appetites. So we need to be able to eliminate the things that are distracting us and that are feeding us, that we're feasting upon, in order to feast upon something better. I, I want you to hear the words of Jesus Christ he said this in John 4, 34. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Listen to Psalm 27, verse 8. Seek, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. You see the emphasis there, church? He is our food. We must learn to feast upon him. Secondly, try to accomplish God's will the world's way. Try to accomplish God's will the world's way. We pick up next here in verse 5, and it says this, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I, I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. This is bad parenting, okay? This is what she is doing here is tragic. It is awful. Look what happens next. So he went and he took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. 
Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. There's so much deception here. There's so much manipulation. There's so much twisting of the word of God. There's a sense in which we're supposed to recall the events in the Garden of Eden. She took the garments and the skins of the young goats and she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And here is the blasphemy right here. He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. No, he didn't. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Isaac is the chief sinner in this passage, but I'll tell you what, Rebecca is not far behind. And though Isaac is, is blind and it's a, a tragic display of spiritual leadership in the home, there's actually a deeper absurdity here in this section. Rebecca and Jacob believe that God would not be able to accomplish his own purposes without their help. They mistakenly believe that they must take matters into their own hands, that God needs their help, even if that help is dishonest and self-serving. They have come to, again, tragically and disturbingly believe that their unrighteous means can accomplish God's righteous ends. Or let me flip that around, that the righteous ends justified their unrighteous means. And they should have learned, shouldn't they, uh, from, from Abraham and Sarah, from their example. I mean, how many times in the Abrahamic narrative ha have we seen that any time God's people choose to, to try to accomplish God's purposes and plans their own way, it always goes sideways. It inevitably goes off the rails and creates so many complications and problems, so much pain and suffering. 
What we find out in the word of God over and over again is that waiting on God to fulfill his promises is a virtue and grasping and manipulating is a vice that always leads to trouble. And, and I just, like, as, as you hear this story, if you've been in the church, you've heard this story before, but I just, I wonder if we went through it there, as we went through it, like, was there a fresh sense of shock that, that a, a mother and son could do this to an aging, blind father? It is so manipulative. It is such an elaborative, really evil scheme spearheaded here by Rebecca. You say, well what, well, what should she have done? I mean, Isaac wasn't leading well. What should she have done? I'll tell you this. She shouldn't have taken matters into her own hands the way she did. But what could she have done? I don't know. Maybe, maybe talk to her husband. Do you ever notice in this passage that, that everybody seems to be avoiding talking to the right people? Right? There's, there's conniving and manipulating and scheming between the two pairs back and forth. And yet, never once do we see uh, Rebecca saying, you know what? I'm going to go talk to your father about this. We're going to sort this out right now. Never once do you see them go, you know what? This is crazy. This kind of havoc in this home is not acceptable. We're calling a family meeting right now, and we're going to deal with this right now. They never go to the right people. They never deal with things the right way. They are disunified at the very core. But the reality is this, the situation didn't happen overnight, Bad marriages rarely do. Parents, I want to encourage you, just if you can kind of glean a little side lesson from this, it should be very obvious, but never put your kids before your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with God. Fight for your marriage early and often, or you will be fighting in your marriage later and often. But the, the major point here is not actually about their marriage It's about their attempt to accomplish God's will the world's way. It's easy to allow our righteous ends to justify our unrighteous means. And I think it's easy for us in our contemporary context to do the very same kinds of things. It's it's God's will that I provide adequately for my family. Therefore, a little lie here or there, a cheating a client out of a little bit more money or or maybe uh, lacking integrity so I can climb the corporate ladder a little bit faster... It's God's will that I I be happy. God wants me happy. God God wants his people to be filled with joy. Therefore, it's okay for me to leave my spouse for another person. Or or maybe one that we've seen in, in modern times in the life of the church. God wants people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So it's okay to, to tolerate sin or to compromise truth. It's okay, it's okay to let false teaching creep in the door. This is the, the message of the progressive church, progressive Christianity. Compromise on these things so that we could see more people saved. When God says, that's not my way. That's man's way and it will never lead to good. It will only lead to tragedy. Such a disastrous picture of a family in disarray, of people failing to, to trust God and to wait patiently on Him. 
What's amazing is that God still used Rebecca and Jacob to achieve his redemptive purposes. But, but he would have accomplished those purposes without their help. Their lack of integrity did not hinder God, but it did bring about unnecessary suffering in their lives and in the lives of their descendants. This, this will have a ripple effect that will move through generations. It is shocking to me that in spite of the sin, God still allows Jacob to receive the blessing. You'll notice in verse 27 through 29 that the blessing is actually delivered. And it is fascinating. It's just helpful maybe to look at this maybe in a little bit more depth. Verse 28, may God give you the dew of heaven. That's a picture of, of water. We've, we've already talked about wells in the past, but the idea of water, especially in, in wilderness, in barren wasteland, it is essential for life. And that's why the next lines are important. And of the fatness of the earth, you need the water to refresh the earth so that things can grow. And therefore, there will be plenty of grain and wine, symbols of God's abundant blessing and provision poured out upon him. And then verse 29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. This, this language, be Lord over your brothers. All, this language here is intended to point us backwards to the blessing that was first given to Abraham in chapter 12. But it's also pointing us forward to the unfolding redemptive plan of God. This language here in verse 29 actually is alluded to in Psalm 2, for example, you know, when the peoples are raging against the Lord and his Messiah, but all the Messiah has to do is ask of the Lord and he will make the nations his possession, his inheritance. This language is also picked up a little bit later. This idea of be a lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. That language maybe points your mind all the way to the end of the book of Genesis where this is used actually by Jacob himself as he blesses Judah in Genesis chapter 49. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Later, biblical authors, again, are going to grab a hold of this language and pull it forward. In Numbers chapter 24, you may re recall uh, the story of Balaam, the false prophet who is still used by God to bless the people of God. He quotes this. And then he goes on to say in chapter 24 of Numbers, verse 17, to talk about the, the scepter to come out of Judah. You say, well, what is this ultimately saying? What is this blessing really all about? It, it's saying simply this, that God is going to bring about his blessing in spite of human sin and because of human sin. Ultimately, God is going to save the world. God is going to save sinners. And this is such a helpful reminder for us. Do you notice that all throughout Scripture, God does not bless righteous saints. He always chooses to bless rebellious sinners. There are none righteous. No, not one. That's what we're supposed to see throughout this passage. The people of God didn't deserve the blessing of God. Do you get that? 
Do you see that in your own life? I hope you do. I hope you look at your life and you can, you can look at uh, Jacob and Rebecca and Isaac and Esau and you, you can say to yourself, man, not how wicked they are, how evil they are, how deceptive they are, how manipulative they are, how much of a, a lawbreakers they are, but you can look at them and say, I see myself in them. I see myself in them, and, and, and because I do, I know that like them, I do not deserve the blessing of God. I do not deserve God's uh, unmerited grace. I deserve just the opposite. God is demonstrating his grace, not because of their sin, but in spite of their sin. We must be committed. I think this is the, the main application I just want to drive into your heart from this passage here. We must be committed to accomplishing God's will, God's way. We must refuse to use unethical means to achieve God's purposes. And you say, well, how do we do that? Let me just give you two really simple ways to do that. You need to deepen your Christian convictions. You need to deepen your Christian convictions about what the Bible says is true, what God says is right, true, good, beautiful. You need to work hard to form your thinking by the Word of God. And then when your convictions are well-formed, listen, as they're being well-formed, here's the second thing you need to be doing, and do this alongside. These are two separate categories. You need to forge Christ-like character, okay? So, so this is essential. You want to make sure you don't compromise, you don't capitulate, you don't sacrifice your integrity even to accomplish some kind of good objective or some kind of what you believe is a God-glorifying end. Here's what tethers you right here. It is conviction and it is character. Those two things work to preserve you. Next, the next worldly way to achieve the blessing of God is, is to do this, a trade godly repentance with worldly remorse, or for worldly remorse. And here, the pain just is unleashed on these pages. It's... it's Amazing, the timing of this. Look at this, verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. It's like Isaac goes out the back door as Jacob, is, or Jacob goes out the back door as Esau's coming in the front door. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully 
and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers, and I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The traumatic trembling that ripped through Isaac's body and soul indicated this collapse of his willful opposition to the word of God. It certainly was the pain of betrayal, the understanding of the deceit of his own flesh and blood, but there is built into this a recognition of his own defiance to the word and will of God. Commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse He observed this about this text. He said, Before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God. Down came his idol, and the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride, which had slyly planned to thwart God, toppled to the ground, broken beyond repair. When Isaac trembled exceedingly, all his desires were shattered. Isaac's submissive conclusion, yes, and he shall be blessed, declared that he had been defeated and that he accepted Jacob as blessed of God. There is certainly recognition here. Esau sees it as well. But while Isaac surrenders to it, and I do think that that statement that he makes there in verse 33 is his recognition that yes, he was standing in opposition to the revealed word of God, and now he acknowledges it. Now he confesses it. Now he accepts it. But while Isaac surrenders to this truth, Esau fights against it. Esau tries to acquire the blessing of God here in this emotional plea through sorrowful tears. This is what Hebrews 12 is talking about. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but I want to put it back on the screen. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 15 and 17, because I think some have wrongly, is that right? There it is. Uh, Wrongly understood this verse. Notice what it says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, that's key, he was rejected 
rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, listen, sometimes um, the, old, the New Testament helps us properly interpret the Old Testament, okay? It's right that we look at how the New Testament authors understand the Old Testament passages. What, what they say it means is clearly what it means. Sometimes, though, there are some confusing passages in the New Testament. We need to go back to the Old Testament so we can get clarity on what the New Testament is trying to highlight and tell us. This is one of those instances. Some people read this verse and they believe it's saying that you can get to a point where you can no longer repent. That is not what this is talking about. Here's what we need to see because this passage illuminates this truth for us, right? Here Esau was not seeking repentance. He was seeking the blessing apart from repentance, okay? It's not that he couldn't repent. He didn't want to repent, He didn't want God, he wanted the blessings of God. He was choosing the blessing over the blesser, and you can't have the blessing that way. You you must choose the blesser over the blessing in order to get both the blesser and the blessing. Is that confusing enough? He he could have repented. This is showing us here. What was it that he wept over? He wept over the loss of the blessing. He wept bitterly over it. He wanted the world. He wanted the goods of the world. He wanted what he felt he deserved. He wanted, wanted what he felt was his by right. He desperately wanted it. He just didn't want to get it God's way. He had every opportunity. Listen, if we could rewrite this script. Esau, you say, what should he have done in this moment? Listen, he should have fallen on his face and accepted the revealed will and word of God. Jacob is the son through whom God is going to bring blessings of salvation to the world. And I acknowledge that. I accept that. I believe that. That would have been the way he could have obtained the grace of God. But he failed. He failed to obtain the grace of God. Why? One simple reason. He wouldn't repent. He wouldn't repent. It's the greatest tragedy any human being can face is the failure to repent in the face of your sin. And instead of getting a blessing, he gets an anti-blessing. It's a curse. And you say, what are we supposed to make of that? Here's what you're supposed to make of that. You're supposed to see here in Esau that he is just like Ishmael. He's just like Cain. He's a seed of the serpent. What makes somebody a seed of the serpent? They will not repent of their sin and embrace the promise of God. There, there, can be, listen, there can be no enjoyment of God's presence, no spiritual revival in your life, no redemption for your soul without godly repentance. Worldly remorse and godly repentance are, are in direct opposition to one another. That's what we see this, this passage showcasing. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what kind of earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is true sorrow and brokenness, okay? Look at what it's doing inside of you. It's not about weeping over what you have lost or what you think you deserve. 
but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Here's what it's saying. Listen, there is a, a kind of sorrow, a kind of remorse, but when you feel, yes, the pain of your sin because you've lost something near and dear to you, but it never leads to repentance. It leads to anger. It leads to bitterness. It leads to malice toward others. It leads to dis- discontentment in your soul. But there is a godly grief and when you come face to face with your sin, when you feel the weight of your sin, when you're crushed by your sin, you break under that weight and it produces this zeal to be made right, a longing to do whatever is necessary to make things right. Real repentance produces confession forsaking of sin, a desire for reconciliation with those that you have hurt because of your sin, making restitution because of what your sin maybe has cost. It produces a separation from the world and ultimately it produces a submission to the lordship of Christ and it leads to the filling of his spirit within you. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, he, he said this, I'll put this on the screen. He said, repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. And I just want to list those for you. Um, you can put all six up there. And I just, I just, this is, I thought this is really, really helpful. Just notice this. Here's the, you're like, how do I, how, how do I experience true repentance? Here's, here's what he suggests. I think it's, it's really, really biblical and really helpful. You need sight of sin. You need to see your sin for what it actually is. You need to recognize that your sin is actually real, that you are in rebellion against a holy and righteous God, that he has determined what is right and what is wrong, and you're in violation of not only his law, but of his very character. Secondly, you need sorrow for sin. You need to not just see it, you need to be sorrowful of it. You need a godly sorrow. You need to recognize that your sin is destructive to your relationship with God and yourself and with others. Third, you need confession of sin. You need to simply say to God what he says about your sin. My sin is sin, and I'm confessing it before you. Fourth, you need shame for sin. It's interesting that this comes after a sight, sorrow, and confession. You say, why is it placed there? Because true repentance, listen, it doesn't just run away from the shame of sin. It actually kind of marinates in it a little bit. Why? Why? Because you have to keep feeling the shame of sin so that you don't want right back into your sin, right? You have to get to this place, even after you've confessed your sin, where you're like, this sin is ugly, it's gross, it's so destructive in my life, and I'm embarrassed by this sin. I don't want this sin. In fact, that should lead you to this, a hatred for sin. You have to get to, you want to see true brokenness over your sin. Here's what you need to pray for as a Christian. You keep falling back into sin. You keep slipping back into habitual sin. Pray for this right here. God, help me feel the shame of my sin. God, help me to hate my sin. Help me to hate the sin that put the nails in my Savior's hands and feet. Help me to hate the sin that separated me from my God, from the King of the universe. And that ultimately leads to a turning from sin. That's what repentance is. It is an actual 180 where you're turning away from sin towards God, towards holiness and righteousness. He he goes on, Thomas Watson does, and he says this, if any one of these is left out, repentance loses its virtue. 
Yes, and I would add that this is motivated by the truth, listen, that God extends the grace of forgiveness for sin. The reason we can repent and walk through this process is because we know our God is gracious to forgive. Amen? Because we know our God, our King, He paid for that sin. Jesus hung on the cross. Our certificate of debt was nailed to the cross. And so we can work through this process knowing that God is gracious to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. George Swinnick said this. He said, Upon the two hinges of faith and repentance do all the promises of the Bible hang. That's true. You get no promises of the Scripture. You get none of the blessings of God because you cannot have Jesus unless you believe in Him and repent of your sins. Repentance and faith, two sides to the same coin. I love that. Two hinges upon which all the promises of the Bible hang. So let me just ask you, are you walking in sin today? I mean, today, did you walk in here knowing that you're walking in willful, deliberate sin? And and then secondly, I would just simply ask you, do you want to enjoy the blessing of God? For some of you today, you're in sin. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. And and you're like Esau right now who's standing right at this fork in the road. And God is saying, listen, you, you have a choice to make. Choose this day whom you will serve. I'm standing here. My arms are open wide. My grace is available to you. But you need to be broken over your sin. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in me. You need to grab hold of my grace today by faith. Repent of your sin and believe. And if you do that, the Bible says, if you confess your sins, you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you shall be saved. Trade worldly remorse for godly repentance. Choose the blesser over the blessing and get them both in the end. Final worldly way to achieve the blessing of God. Trust that God's salvation can be thwarted by the world's sin. Here we see in verse 41, this passage comes to an end. It says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Another allusion to Cain and Ishmael. But the words of Esau, uh, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while. The, the passage indicates like this is going to be a short-lived reality uh, un, until your brother's fury turns away. It's going to be 20 years. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? It's possible to believe that human sin is somehow stronger than the sovereignty of God. And therefore, that God's blessing can only be achieved by human effort or human means. This, this, this really is at the heart of 
this passage in so many ways because, again, everyone in the story sinned. Everyone in the family sought the blessing of God without bending the knee to God. This, this little family was fraught with ambition and jealousy, envy, lying, deceit, coveting, blasphemy, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, and stupidity, and everybody lost because of it. The family was blown to smithereens, so to speak. A grenade was lobbed in the middle, and everybody just goes doing their own thing, and there off goes Jacob for 20 years before he ever finds any reconciliation with his brother Esau. And God's going to have to send him away to teach him some lessons. And as we look at this story, I think we ought to be reminded again that this really is our story. It is the story of humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, apart from the grace of God, are under the curse of sin and desperately need the blessing of salvation. Our hope cannot be in our own ability to achieve it. This passage leaves us in this place wondering, how is God going to redeem these people? Will sin thwart God's salvation? No. Not their sin, not your sin, not all the sin in the whole world combined can prevent God's will from being accomplished. In fact, God uses sin to accomplish our salvation. What, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, is a constant refrain over all the scriptures. And here, what they so clearly meant for evil in so many different ways, God is going to take and use for the good of all humanity. He's going to accomplish the salvation of the world still through this deceiver, Jacob, the cheater. God protects his life and uses his sin to bring about salvation, both his and ours. And this theme in Scripture finds its culmination at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where Paul, or we're told, sorry, in Acts chapter 2, that the greatest display of divine power over human sin is put on display, where God uses the sinful, wicked deeds and plans of men to accomplish his good, saving purposes for humanity. He uses their evil and ultimately brings about the salvation of the world. Christian, amidst our sin and our stupidities, the unstoppable plan of God is determined to bring us to completion, even when we resist it. This is what this passage is telling us. And Paul in 2 Timothy 2, he actually highlights this. This is a, a, the trustworthy saying and he goes on to kind of deliver this saying. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, I just want you to pause for a minute and, and just look up there for a second at these verses. The first two lines express assurance, and the third line warns us. But when we read the fourth line, we're expected to see a corollary. That's what our minds want to see, right? If we are faithless, he will be unfaithful. That's what we're supposed to think. But in this shocking turn of events, we read, if we are faithless, what does it say, church? He remains, what's that word? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God cannot and will not be anything but faithful to his unfaithful children. Isn't that good news? Even when they manipulate and fight against his will, his word will prevail. 
We cannot achieve God's blessings the world's way. Only Jesus Christ achieves it. That's what we need to see. That's the irony of this passage. Every person here is trying to achieve it, but only Jesus Christ can achieve it. And by his grace and through faith in him, we then receive it because we receive him. Instead, we must enjoy the blessing of God. How do we do that? Well, it's, it's really simple. We treasure God's word above worldly pleasures. We try to accomplish God's will God's way. We trade worldly remorse for godly repentance. We trust that God's salvation can't be thwarted by the world's sin. God's plan has always been to rescue a people and bring them into his family. And if you are in his family today, listen, as dysfunctional as you and God's family can be sometimes, you can rest in this truth. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Father, we praise you for you are faithful even when we are not. God, if if our salvation was left up to us, if we could achieve it in any way, shape, or form, God, we never would. We, we could never do it, Lord. We're, we're not capable, Father, of being perfectly obedient to your law. We're not capable of erasing our sin. Lord, we are wholly dependent upon you being faithful even when we are faithless. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are our faithful king that you and you alone live the perfect life, that you died a substitutionary death, that you credit your righteousness to us as you receive the payment for our sin. Our hope and our rest is found not in our own ability to achieve our salvation, but in the fact that by grace, through faith, we have received the precious gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in you, Jesus, and we praise you for that now. We want to honor you and lift our voices, so would you receive our praise, O faithful God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.